Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, earlier today I was driving around. I had to go out and get a, a, a haircut. And basically the way that works is I know about this barber shop just up the road from my old house, right? And uh, it's we're talking like old school barber shop, right? You go in there, you give them your money. Not only will they cut your hair, they will also shave your face. You know, they'll get they'll whip out the straight razor and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, work your face over with it and everything. And I don't know about anybody else, but that has always just kind of freaked me out, having like a blade, like a real fucking blade, like that close to my throat. But, you know, whatever. I had the Grizzly Adams beard going for a while. It was time to do something. So I took action. So anyway, I was on my way home, right? And uh, I was driving around. And I got cut off by some crazy bitch driving around in her little Geo, whatever the hell that was. And on the back, there's this fruity little sticker it says baby on board now i don't know about any of the rest of you but i have never understood just what in the high holy hell i'm supposed to do whenever i see a sticker like that on the back of somebody's car i mean what the fuck am i you know like what i'm supposed to just like drive different just because you've got a baby in your car i mean i don't know i've never understood that i've always thought i was kind of fucking retarded myself so but anyway and um this is just one of those things that you know, just like these stupid, stupid things that you see around in life sometimes that you don't ever really stop to think about until like after the fact. It was only when I got home I started thinking, you know, when you think about it, having a baby on board sticker on your car is the most fucking retarded thing. I mean, why don't you tell me that you've got pocket lint on board or lost change on board, you know, uh, stray French fry on board. I mean, it's no more and no less arbitrary than having a baby on board for all the shits I give. So... Anyway, I just want to throw that out there and see what comes back to me. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. I love your ramblings. I really do. I love it when you just go off like that. It amuses the shit out of me. <laughs> I'm always like, where is he going? Oh, okay. I'm just going to sit this one and, and just, just see where the ride takes me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's true. Well, anyway, anyway, so... Uh, I probably should. I, it, it, honestly, that only just now came to me, or else I would have told you I was going to do it right when I did. No, that's fine. No, I, I just, I, 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 it's like, it's like I'm listening to the podcast I'm going to be on before I'm on it. It's actually kind of cool. Yeah, it's a real quantum leap type of thing. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Doctor Doom, where's Buddy? Seal for. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is, is I have these freaking gigantic mega-series wherein I talk about a particular topic, or theme, character, idea, or, or just whatever, for six episodes. That's a basic structure of my show, actually. I got six episodes wherein I talk about pretty much anything I want. For the seventh episode, I talk about another in the DC Paradox Press line of big books, 
which incidentally is soon to end. Then the eighth episode is all about Smallville, my favorite TV show ever in the history of anything ever, always and forever, world without end, amen. And then I start all over again. And right now, I'm working my way through a mega series called This Is The End. Remember those comics from the 90s where the main hero died, got incapacitated, went insane, slipped on a banana peel, got a hangnail, or had some other misfortune befall him? I do. And those comics are awesome. So. This mega series called This Is The End is all about talking about those types of stories. And that just about brings me to today's story. But first, I'd better introduce my guest. Now, no bullshit this time around. I'm just going to introduce the co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, the co-host of Two True Freaks, the former co-host of the Amazing Spider-Man's uh, Crawl Space podcast, Actually, I don't think I elaborated on what I said a moment ago. The co-host of Two True Freaks Comics Monthly Monday. Not actually Two True Freaks itself. Two True Freaks Comics Monthly Monday and the Big Cheese High Muckety Muck from Views from the Long Box, Mr. Michael Bailey himself. Welcome back to the show, sir. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back, actually. Because the last time that you were on the show, it was for my... If memory, I don't even remember what I remember. What we talked about, I just don't remember. It was the, the extinction level event thing. Uh, that's we did. Right. We did uh, secret invasion and um, legends. Legends. That's right. And those episodes were actually extremely well received. And I haven't talked about any of the feedback yet because something, something. I'm busy. But um, point is, you know, extremely happy always to have you on the show. But I got to tell you, the last couple of times you've been on the show, people really enjoyed it. So. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm full of cheer and good compliments today. So uh, <laughs> you, caught, you caught me on a good day, sir. Caught me on a good day. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm going to make you introduce today's story. What exactly are we talking about today? Well, we are talking about the probably most misunderstood Batman story of all time, uh, Nightfall. Which is weird, because when you say Nightfall... It's kind of like the death of Superman because it's two different things. Mm -hmm. It is both a storyline called Nightfall, and it is kind of the catch-all for the entire like three acts of Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's End. True that. Uh, I, I don't know if you feel that way. I've I've always kind of catch myself because I don't want to refer to Night's End as Nightfall because it's two different stories. It's like you are always going on about, you know, there was Doomsday as a storyline, and then there is The Death of Superman, which is the name of the graphic novel. Right. That's two different things. There was never The Death of Superman Part 1. It was Doomsday. So, and, and Nightfall is kind of similar, where when people talk about it, they talk about it in this, like, general sense. But to me, it's a very specific, long-ass story. Uh, not that I'm insulting it, but there was a lot of parts to Nightfall. Because there's even two acts to Nightfall itself. Uh, you know, it, it, it's broken up between Batman getting his back broken and Jean-Paul Valli fully becoming Batman in his new Star-Spangled outfit. So, but it's just, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's the story that... When I say it's misunderstood, I mean that on a couple levels. Not only in, in terms of naming it, but in terms of 
people misunderstanding why it happened. Because the general yeah. comic group think, uh, because of just, you know, people say it enough, suddenly it's true. Yeah. Is that this was the res- this was Batman's response to the death of Superman? Um, Doomsday, or Doomsday, excuse me. <laughs> um, and that's that's crap. Not only has it been dispelled by Denny O'Neill, who was the editor at, at the time itself, but if you look at the dates, it doesn't add up because this story was well underway and starting during like funeral for a friend and you can't put something like this together just like that well you can today and it turns out like crap but back then they actually cared yes so you know this was this was well underway and it was just a coincidence that it like went into you know superman right into batman's thing which is why i think the wonder woman story and the green lantern story that were reactions to these didn't end up as well because they were planned events. What? Back up, sir. Are you are you suggesting that you're not big on Emerald Twilight? Um, I'm saying it was very forced. That, that doesn't mean I don't ah, like it. Okay, I, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying it was pushed out there instead of being this story that organically grew out of the Green Lantern titles. Because if you read Green Lantern like up to that, like the issue before that, Hal seems fine. Right, yeah. And then suddenly he's psycho and snapping necks and stuff like that, so. Yeah, and uh, Boudica, she needs a hand, huh? She deserves a hand. (laughs) Absolutely. And you you raise actually a kind of an interesting point. You know, I I did completely tangential to, you know, I think your point and also really what we're here to talk about. But, you know, it is weird how, like, the the names of these comics, there's the name, like their official publishing name, and then there's they're what they're actually called by people. Mm-hmm. And I think another good example of that is the dark Knight returns. Yes. Which is not the dark Knight returns. That's the name of one of the volumes in it. But somehow, especially today, you cannot call a comic book, the dark Knight anymore. You just, you can't, or if you do, you have to call it the dark Knight. You know, the one from the eighties, it was written and drawn by Frank Miller. And, uh, it was a uh, paint by numbers by what's his name. That chick that Frank Miller was fucking. And, you know, uh, that, that that story, you know, ancient fucking Bruce, right? The one that, believe it or not, Chris Nolan didn't really adapt. Not really. And uh, yeah, that yeah, that's the one. Or you can just say you can say all of that or you can just say The Dark Knight Returns. So it's yeah, it, it's it's like the name of the trade paperback again becomes the name of the story when it wasn't that it was The Dark Knight. It was The Dark Knight Triumphant, uh, you know, The Dark Knight Falls. Uh, those were the names of the specific stories in the because because, you know, I know a lot of people may not realize this. It was actually a four issue miniseries before it was a collected edition. But, you know, why 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 we sh- should we have pesky things like facts and reality get into uh, get in our way of, uh, of having a conversation about a book that is way overblown? Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's one of those things that. It, it always kind of, on the one hand, it, it kind of irritates me when people call the 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 uh, fo- the follow-up story, the story after Superman died, they call that world without a Superman. Mm-hmm. And I get it. You know, from a marketing standpoint, you have got to have trade paperbacks that invoke the name Superman. They've got to do that or else you're going to have a bunch of 
would-be customers that have no idea what the fuck they're supposed to do with a trade paperback called Doomsday. They know what to do with the trade paperback called The Death of Superman. Yeah. But one that's called simply Doomsday, they don't know what to do with that. Or, what the fuck is Reign of the Supermen? What's up with that? You know, it's raining men. I, 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 don't know what, I don't know what to do with that. I'm not buying it, you know? And I don't know. I'm, it, I'm rambling. So, anyway, you were saying? Well, I, I was just making the point, uh, trying to get back to the point, that Nightfall was a storyline that really kicked off in a special called Vengeance of Bane, mm -hmm. uh, where a new villain for Batman was developed by Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan. Uh, there was another miniseries called Batman Sword of Azrael, mm. uh, which was written by Dennis O'Neill and drawn by, get this, Joe Casada. Yes. It's really weird to think that the cr chief creative officer, because uh, he's, uh, he's got Jeff Johns' job over at Marvel now, uh, essentially that, that, that he's, that he's like got his hands pretty much deep into the creation of what became nightfall. And even before that, there was a couple different stories that don't, that aren't in the new trade paperbacks, which kind of pissed me off that kind of lead into it. But you know, the, 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 the thousand foot view is that there's this dude named Bane who was raised in a prison and what I mean was he was literally born and raised in this South American prison on the Isle of Santa Prisca. Mm -hmm. And he basically made himself King Badass because he was thrown in a hole for like 10 years and had all these nightmares about this bat. Uh, because, well, it's a Batman story. I'm sure if it was another character, he would have had another nightmare. But uh, so he decides I'm going to go to Gotham and I'm going to break this guy and I'm going to take over. That's oh, a good and, thing you didn't think that about the Blue Beetle then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it's kind of funny because he, he does just that. He goes to Gotham, he causes a lot of chaos, and he breaks Batman. And is eventually taken down by Batman's successor, this uh, Jason Bourne wannabe uh, named Jean-Paul Valley, who is part of the this Order of St. Dumas. And he, Batman and him had an adventure together and he basically came to Gotham to kind of get his head together and eventually becomes Batman and goes nuts and eventually has to be taken down by Bruce, who gets better. Yeah. And I, you know what, honestly, that's probably the best summary that we can yeah. ask for of that trilogy. So thank you very much. Um, I mean, I, th there's so much that you have to talk about it so generally i mean there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that happen in between but that's that's generally the gist of it right and the whole idea behind bringing you onto the show uh, for this was if i'm wrong on this feel free to correct me but i swear to think that there was an episode where you know you and shag kind of kicked the tires on uh, nightfall and then i got the idea and again if i'm wrong you know feel free to say so you know, I got the idea that you were up for the game, whereas the irretrievable Shag really isn't a big Nightfall guy. So he he would have done it, I guess, kind of reluctantly. So you could think of this as sort of like a nefarious conspiracy on my part to get that episode of Views from the Long Box out there. Yeah, but I mean, really. I've, I've, I've actually written out outlines of how I would tackle it, and it just it just doesn't happen because... I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, 
the death and return of Superman as a three act structure of doomsday funeral for a friend and reign of the Superman, mm-hmm. uh, is the closest I've ever come to getting broken in terms of podcasting. Jeez, Cause yeah. I'm not saying this to be egotistical. Jeff and I owned that story. Yeah. Uh, our coverage, you know, we, we did it all. We literally did it all right down to a commentary of the animated film. So, Thinking about getting into that again when there's even more comics to talk about, it's just like, good God. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's like I'd have to quit my job and like sell most of my possessions to pay for you know bills and stuff and just do nothing but, but that. So uh, I, I appreciate you asking me on so I can kind of get a little out of my system, essentially. Yeah, and, you know, happy to have you. And the other thing is, you know, it's kind of funny. This was a, a topic of conversation between me and Sean Engel whenever we whenever we did our our uh, show about Doomsday, which, as you say, it's more than just Doomsday. Because if you just go by the story of Doomsday, Doomsday sees, and he you know he comes, he sees, he kicks everyone's ass. It's a pretty easy story to summarize. But mm-hmm. you know, one of the things though that you know he and I both kind of reasoned was that having him on for the emerald twilight show made absolutely no sense whatsoever having you on for the doomsday episode similarly made absolutely no sense whatsoever especially in your case though because you know you and jeffrey really did go you pretty much broke the internet in trying to uh give this probably the most important superman story of easily the last 20 years you know, give that the full treatment. And so on the one hand, you know, yeah, you guys did a great job. But on the other hand, it would feel kind of weird and more than a little inappropriate to ask you onto a show where you could only do a lesser version of it. I don't want to set myself up for failure that way. I certainly don't want to set your, you up for failure that way. So um, here we are. And, you know, the, uh, the thing about, you know, Nightfall is that, you know, we've been told that, you know, this was something that was going to happen with Batman anyway. And it really is just a coincidence of timing that it overlapped with Superman as it did. I've really got no reason to question that on the one hand. On the other hand, though, I to what degree, if any, was, I guess, Night Quest as a follow-up influenced by goings-on with Reign of the Superman and whatnot? I mean, do you think there was any chance that they looked at what the Superman creative teams were doing and said, you know what, this is a standard that we're going to have to meet. And so do you think that changed anything not to do with nightfall per se, but more to do with night quest? Uh, it's possible. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw it out there that on a higher editorial, Denny O'Neill talking to his guys, but Denny's bosses talking to him, like, you know, this is working out pretty good. Maybe you should follow this. But the way Nightfall bleeds into Night Quests, and, and, and I'm not saying like Night Quest, all of the stories in Night Quest are like brilliant because some are definitely stronger than others. But it always felt to me that while all of the different creators were working towards a similar goal, they were all telling their own stories. Uh, Very true. Batman had. The, you know, one issue of Batman went into another issue of Batman, whereas Reign of the Superman 
was adventures leads into action, leads into Superman, the man of steel leads into Superman, leads into adventures, leads into action. So, you know, if they were really going to do more to emulate that, they would have all been connected. Whereas it's, it's amazing to me to think that a character can influence not only, you know, how the creator writes the story, but how the creators work together. Right. If you look at the Superman, you know, Superman's like, I'll work with anybody. You know, I'll work with Green Arrow. Doesn't make a lick of sense, but Ollie and I'll team up, you know, and, and I'm cool with that. Whereas Batman likes primarily to work alone. So it's kind of funny that the Superman creators are all willing or more willing to work together. And all the Batman creators are like, yeah, well, we're all towards the end goal, but I've got my story. <laughs> yeah, it's... And, and that's fine. I'm not criticizing it. I just think it's funny. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it does it does kind of tie in with a theory I've got about fandom. And this is all fandom. I don't care what you're a fan of. You tend to take on certain I don't, characteristics of whatever it is that you're following. And I, I, I submit to you, it's not even necessarily an intentional thing on most people's part. But I've just noticed that Superman fans... They're not necessarily out for, you know, uh, like a doomsday level type of smackdown action fest, you know, mega fight. You know, mm -hmm. they do enjoy those stories. But ultimately, on a personal level, there there are people who. To varying degrees and in varying ways, believe in doing the right thing, you know, um, there's a filmmaker by the name of um, Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm -hmm. I find that his fans, they tend to be. Fairly literate, not pretentiously so, but they tend to be, you know, fairly well informed about most things. And, you know, they usually have an interesting angle on pretty much anything that comes up in news or conversation or whatever else. And then as it goes for like Van Halen fans, they all tend to be dickheads. So I, there's <laughs> there's something to be said for like whatever it is that you're a fan of influencing you on just this weird like id subconscious level. And so maybe it shouldn't be too big a surprise to find out that the creative forces behind Batman, the consummate loner, are themselves somewhat kind of lone wolves themselves in their own way. So I'm not sure if you can pluralize lone wolves, but Fug and I did it anyway because it's my podcast and I'm awesome. So back to you, sir. Sounds like a, a lousy 90s wannabe grunge band, the lone wolves. It does, yeah. And you, you know, do, you Brendan Fraser is the works, lead guitarist. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> No, but, you know, to, to me, Nightfall is kind of a funny thing because I, I'm one of these people that, you know, like Superman's always there, uh, except for like a nine month periods, you know, in, in the almost 30 years that I've been seriously collecting comics. Superman has been this constant, but Batman has been this, you know, I have I have periods, you know, I have like times where I'm into the character and times where I drop out of the character. You know, the first time that I really got into Batman was the summer of 89, which makes me sound like a poser. Right. But, you know, saying like you were into Batman in the summer of 89 is to say like you were breathing oxygen in the summer of 89. Oh, so Everyone. you were alive in the summer of 89. Good to know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I remember being in Walden books and seeing the first part of Batman Year Three on the spinner rack, uh, which was a nicer spinner rack than the one you found at the grocery store. And also on that same thing was the first part of Mud Pack, 
and Detective Comics. And both of those just grabbed me and I stayed on till basically Tim Drake puts on the Robin costume. And then I fell out of it. In the summer of 94, I'm freshly graduated from, from high school. I'm taking the study skills course at college because I was lazy in high school. And suddenly this zero hour thing is going on and I'm starting to buy like a bunch of different titles. And I decide, well, I'm going to start picking up the Batman books again. And it's just like, well, holy crap, this, this whole storyline happened. You know, I have no idea what happened. I am so lost. Wait a second. There is a novelization written by Denny O'Neill. And I remembered the Batman novel, the Superman, Death and Life of Superman book by Roger Stern. So I'm like, okay, I'll read that. So I blitzed through that book. And that is how I first experienced Nightfall was the novel. And then almost on the heels of that was the BBC audio production by Dirt Mags. Uh, called Batman Nightfall. So I listened to that. Hmm. So it was really, I experienced the story in two different forms before I finally read the comics. Wow. Well, you know, I was coming at it from the point of view of somebody who was trying his dead level best to follow the story. Now, this may be offensive to Batman fans, and if it is, I don't care. Um, Batman to me has always been very much a secondary character. I mean, Superman has always been my top priority when it comes to collecting comics or seeing movies or whatever. I mean, the now to be fair, I mean, like the first, the first Batman movie that I didn't see on opening day was The Dark Knight Rises. I think it was it, it was out for like two or three weeks before I finally saw it. But all the other ones, including Batman and Robin, I saw on opening day. But I tried to make Batman as big a priority as I could, but try though I might, he's never going to be anything other than, you know, second, second banana for me. Right. But I was trying to follow this story. And so, you know, there were issues that I missed, you know, when they were coming out at the time, there were issues that I missed of, of nightfall, but I really did try my best to, to, you know, follow the story about as well as I could. And it really wasn't until we started getting into Night Quest. It just, as you like to say, it kind of broke me. You know, I've, this character that, let's face it, he's always going to be second, you know, second fiddle to Superman in my book. He's not even in the fucking book anymore, number one. And number two, the guy that's replaced him is in these some of these just fucking horrible stories. Now, to be fair... As you like to say, you know, the detective comics stories, I think, were as good as they could be considering. But overall, I mean, I just kind of regard Night Quest as it's a little bit of a slog. But I got really two things to say as far as Night Quest is concerned. Number one, Night Quest, just a, a, the inevitable comparison here is to Reign of the Supermen where you basically have somebody other than the main guy filling in for the main guy. And there is a sense in which I do kind of feel that NightQuest explored that as a concept better than did uh, the Superman books with their concepts. Because when you think about it, we only really got uh, two months of stories uh, sent, you know, focused on each of the individual supermen. 
Mm-hmm. Then starting in the third month of the story, that's when there's all of their storylines and whatnot began to coalesce around each other. And now at this point, we're full scale balls deep into like the real like the real story of Reign of the Superman, which isn't four Supermen running around Metropolis, you know, are having these little pissing contests over who the real guy is. The real meat and potatoes of what Reign of the Superman is as a story is basically the story of Hank Henshaw out for revenge. And anything else you want to put on the other side of that, I don't know, it just kind of feels like that's more like garnish to what the main story really was all about. And it takes the one true Superman to finally put a stop to it. And I do kind of, you know, in retrospect, I do kind of wish that Reign of the Superman had been less of a story in that sense and maybe a little bit more of an era where I think, like, how long did Night Quest go, like, go on? Like, at least, like, six months or something like that. Yeah, about six, seven months, really. And and I guess Night Quest had the advantage that it was focusing on one character, whereas Rain had four different characters to focus on. But I totally get what you're saying, that it would have been kind of cool to see Carl Kessel and Tom Grummet explore who Superboy was as a character a little more before getting thrown into the ultimate story. And the same with the cyborg, the same with who ultimately was real revealed to be the eradicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was basically n- pretty much known as the last son and the same with steel. Uh, you know, like who are these people? Are they really trying to be Superman? Because one of the things about the reign of the Superman, I, I won't say it's a criticism, But the selling point is who, if any of these are the real Superman and right from the jump, you're like, none of these people are Superman. I mean, even the Eradicator and the Cyborg who looked like them, I'm like, no, 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 they're not going to do that. They're not going to bring Superman back as a cyborg and have him be repaired at the end of the story. That's stupid. So it's just like right from word go. and, and, And even in the story itself, they throw in what is supposed to be a red herring, but is kind of an obvious reveal that the real Superman's back in the fortress, chilling in his uh, cool floating chair, watching CNN. Uh, right. Which I'd actually like that chair. It looks comfy. But I, I think that's where where they had the advantage is that each of the creative team, well, the two creative teams that really dealt with Jean-Paul Vallée, uh, because Shadow of the Bat kind of dealt with him, but then Shadow of the Bat got sucked into Bruce Wayne's story. Right. Uh, And Legends of the Dark Knight, uh, much to the chagrin of people reading Legends of the Dark Knight at the time, got sucked into it, too. Which included me. Which 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 I can kind of understand. You know, Andy Leyland and his son, Michael, covered this entire storyline up to Troika uh, over a couple of years on their show. Hey, Kids Comics. And I cannot recommend if you want like a blow by blow of this thing, go listen to them because they they nailed it. But. To, uh, you know, the, the thing that I got from them is that Legend, which I wasn't buying Legends of the Dark Knight at the time, is that, you know, you were trucking along and you read Legends because they were self-contained stories. You didn't have to worry about what was going on in the world of Batman to, you know, enjoy the, the hit and miss stories that would be in that book. I mean, Going Sane, which you covered beautifully. Uh, Thank you had nothing really to do with what was going on in Troika and Prodigal, but it was still a solid Batman book that you can go to. It was dependable. And then to suddenly be like, you're part 
five of a story. It's just like WTH. I mean, bad enough they did that during the Destroyer arc back in early 1992, where for some random reason... And I like that story. Don't get me wrong. I thought it was a cool way to bring in the movie... Uh, look of Gotham organically into the comics instead of just having it. Oh, it's here. Good luck. But, uh, you know, really it was just two, two writers, Doug Mensch and Chuck Dixon exploring this character. And it was really funny to me in terms of night quest, uh, to jump ahead a little bit to see how the two of them viewed that character. Cause I always got the sense that Mensch thought he was crazy <clears throat> Whereas Chuck Dixon was a little more sympathetic to the character uh, in the way he handled him. So and, that, I, I, and that at times kind of led to a sort of neurotic characterization of Valley where through Night's End when the story really is intertwining now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I don't want to go so far as to say that he was a different character depending on who was writing him. But there is a degree to which, you know, I think there's something to that, you know. But... <clears throat> The, the I, thing with me, though, with Nightfall is that it always begins with Bane. And Bane is a severely misunderstood character. Oh, okay. Well, well, I, I am going to go so far as to say he is one of the greatest Batman villains that has ever been created. Uh, he is the Venom of Batman's rogues gallery. Are you just saying that because of the drug he uses, or is there more to it? Well, uh, uh, one, he was never as good as when he was first introduced. Ah. So that, like, right from the right, right from word go, while I think Chuck Dixon always handled the character well, other people just wanted him, you know, I mean, God, Infinite Crisis, I am Bane, I break people. Really? That's your move, Jeff Johns? Yeah. God, you have no idea. Because here is a character that, as I said before, was born in prison. So from his literal conception, he's screwed. And he grows up, and all he knows is incarceration. All he knows is that if you are going to be anybody, you have to be able to kick everybody's ass. And he does that, he, you know, with the fr- with his uh, with his guardian trog once he's put into general population, which I'm sorry to me, the thought of like a six year old, seven year old kid being put in general population in a prison that is even worse than any American prison scares the living hell out of me. Yeah. But like, oh, God. So he comes up in this. He's completely self-made. Everything about him he did on his own. And to me, that is a good villain for Batman. Because Bruce Wayne built himself up. Now, Bruce Wayne had the advantage of, you know, like a, a billion-dollar family fortune to do that. And so, freedom. And freedom. I mean, it's 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 easy for Bruce Wayne to run off when he's, a you know, like a 18 years old to the Himalayas to learn how to sweep the floor and cook the rice and... You know, then he gets to learn how to beat somebody's ass. You know, that's easy for him. For me, it was just like, no, I got to go to college or my dad's going to kill me. So, (laughs) but, and he comes to Gotham with the single objective of taking down Batman. But, like every Batman villain, he has a fatal flaw, and that is he's a drug addict. 
he is dependent on the venom to achieve his goals. So he's kind of a schism. He's a self-made man that uses a drug that makes him better than he should be. And the way they developed him through before Nightfall, because I think one of the, the sins of the collected editions of these stories is that they don't put in the Batman issues and the detective issues where he's just kind of in the background, like doing stuff. Like he captures the Riddler at one point, injects him with venom and pushes him at Batman. That's insane. You don't think of the Riddler as a physical villain. No. But here he's all roided out, literally. And then finally, he's just like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to steal some military armament, and I'm going to break out Arkham Asylum. Now, it had been done before. Batman 400, Ra's al Ghul did the same thing. And who wrote that, by the way? Doug Mensch, who was writing <laughs> Batman at the time. Uh, but I think in terms of the storytelling, in the storytelling of 1986, everything getting wrapped up in one issue was exciting and expected. In the 90s, things were a little different. You could stretch this out. And while I'm not saying that every story, that you know, every issue that took place after Bane breaks Arkham out is gold, because, like, the Poison Ivy stuff I could care less about. Mm, yeah. There's some really good stuff in there. And there's some funny stuff, too. Like, the ventriloquist having a sock puppet Socko, yeah. <laughs> as his stand-in for the ventriloquist as he's trying to or as he's trying to find Scarface. And but to me it was always about Batman who was sick to begin with. All of the scar tissue was kind of breaking down in his body and he was kind of ill at the start of this. I mean, it it it's Batman learning a powerful lesson in that you can't do it by yourself. Yeah, he's got Robin helping him. And he's got Jean-Paul in that ninja outfit with the spiky top, which was really stupid. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, kind of helping him. But but mostly he's like, no, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. So finally, after saving the mayor from the Joker and the Scarecrow, he gets home and there's Bane. And he's ready for his fight. And everyone's just like, oh, Bane just wore him down and broke him. I'm like, exactly. That's what you do to Batman. You don't go up to Batman and just challenge him to a fight. Are you are you high? Are you stupid? No. That was great. I loved it. I loved how that all played out. Because then he gets taken down by Jean-Paul Valli as Batman. Yeah, he gets taken out like garbage. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a takedown right there. And the thing is, is that it proves ultimately that Bane was never really fit to do this because... Jean-Paul, in his own way, did what Bane did. He gave himself an advantage. He armored himself up instead of using drugs, proving that one-on-one Bane, you can't take Batman at his prime. If you were off the drugs and Batman was in full flower, this fight's going in a completely different direction. And that's not hypothetical either. That's happened. So we know that to be true. So I think, you know, some of the things that were done with Bane afterwards, especially during Legacy, I like how he kind of got hooked up with Rachel Ghoul at one point uh, and had his had his uh, rematch. And even the Vengeance of Bane 2 special, I really enjoyed when it came out. But I think after that, the character just kind of became Venom. It's just like he is he's an idea and not a character. 
Whereas I felt like he, he was very good for the one purpose. It's almost like Doomsday, too. Yeah, I was going to make that comparison, actually. So, but I, 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 it's why I like Nightfall, the story Nightfall, so much, is that it's this guy, Batman down and wearing him down. And not only that, you get to see the greatest hits of Batman's rogues gallery. So it, it, it's an exciting story in that something is happening but you're also getting to see him to see him take on the Joker and take on the Scarecrow and take on uh, the Two-Face story was stupid. But <laughs> I, 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 I don't like Klaus Janssen as a penciler. I don't like Klaus Janssen. So, yeah, fine. So, so I'm OK with him inking. His pencils just bother the crap out of me. So that story uh, was never one of my favorites. But, you know, seeing like the, the immediate breakout of Arkham is exciting. Because not only do you have Jim Aparo drawing some of that, you have like Norm Brayfogle in the back end of his Batman work, uh, turning in some really good pages, and you get to see like the the shenanigans going on in the background of Mayor Kroll constantly calling up Commissioner Gordon and bitching him out, and Gordon trying to figure out what's going on, and he you know he just got over a heart attack. I mean, there's so much going on in the story, and yet it all works. I mean, Nightfall, the first act going from the moment Arkham is broken out to the moment Batman the Bruce Wayne gets broken and done and then watching Jean-Paul Valli kind of evolve into Asbats as people like to call him I mean that's exciting it's why I think Night Quest and Night's End ultimately is not so much disappointing but kind of a letdown is that you had this exciting overlong first act how do you top that? You know, and you really can't. Well, I, wow, you, you really threw a lot out there. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I, I was, Oh no, no, it's not a criticism. It's just, wow. Talk about a target rich environment. Um, the Batman number 497 is really, that's the issue where Batman and Bane, or I, I guess I should say for accuracy's sake, Bruce and Bane, mm-hmm. um, that's pretty much the one where they have it out. And the entire shtick of this story revolves around Bane, the man who will break Batman. And it's on the fucking cover. So we pretty much know where this story is going. Now, on the one hand, I'm kind of happy and proud of the fact that DC, or at least Denny O'Neill, respected Jim Aparo's legacy with Batman enough to bring him back. Let's face it, you know, at a time in life when Apero probably needed the work, you know? And so on the one hand, I'm kind of thankful for that. But on the other hand, I really do wish Batman number 497 had been drawn by a more engaging and dynamic artist like Norm Brayfogle or Graham Nolan or basically anyone else who was uh, drawing Batman at the time, Brett Blevins, there's another one. And... I just don't think Jim Aparo was the guy to draw that particular story, you know, in retrospect. There's there's just this – first off, I, I kind of feel like Jim Aparo was a little bit beyond his he, – he was kind of past his expiration date, you know, as – you know, that this storytelling powerhouse of the 1970s that I – that I always think of Jim Aparo. I always think of his, his uh, I don't know, mid to late 70s work. And it's just 
not quite of that of that quality anymore. It's almost, not even of the of the quality of death in the family. I agree. And, you know, on the one hand, I mean, his his layouts are they're competent and the storytelling is clear and concise. I mean, he's been in the business by this point, by like he'd probably been in the business. Like what? Like how long had it had been by that point? Like 30 or 40 years or 30 something? 30 or 40 years. I mean, it would have been kind of like getting Kurt Swan to draw Superman number 75. Yeah. And on the one hand, who among us wouldn't appreciate the gesture on the other hand, how appropriate is that really, you know, and at least with Superman number 75, you know, I can, you know, that really needed to be drawn by Dan Jurgens, not just because he's a phenomenal Superman artist to begin with, although there's that, but this was kind of his brainchild, you know, doomsday and this whole, the, you know, this whole storyline of, you know, well, we can't do a wedding, so we're going to do this instead. I mean, the other creators, you know, they may, they gave their two cents and they all took the took what they wanted from that story and everything. But, you know, really, it was it, it all kind of started with Dan Jurgens. And God knows this is uh, Doomsday is pretty much his character. Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's a lot of. There's just something that seems right about him drawing that drawing that issue. And, you know, here with Batman, you know, Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan are the are they're the guys that actually created this character but they're not going to be the ones that show him fulfill uh, his literary mandate i mean even when i was you know collecting this stuff fresh off the shelf it felt a little bit inappropriate to me just on that level it really should have been Graham Nolan who drew this and it should have been Chuck Dixon who wrote it but you know whatever water under the bridge but no matter well, not how, only that, he's he doesn't get to draw the 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 Asbats fight either, uh, because Jim Aparo drew the first half of Batman 500, and then Mike Manley came in for the back half, for for the new armor. Which, from what I understand, I listened years ago. I listened to an interview with Norm Brayfogle, uh, saying that he kind of regretted not drawing Batman 500 because the money Jim Aparo made in royalties on that book was insane. Well, Mike Manley got those same royalties. He yeah. bought a he with cash bought a house from those royalties. Yeah, I mean, like like and and I guess you could kind of say the same for Batman 497 and it went into multiple printings and such that, you know, Aparo probably was I'd probably go for, I, I I don't have any hard data to back this up. He was probably set up for the rest of his life. Or, or at close, least, yeah. Or, or at least very close, because he, you know, he that those, those, those sales figures knees at. So, no, but, and but I agree with you that it would have been much better. Uh, I was always kind of disappointed that, as much as I love Jim Aparo and I love Jim Aparo, that he was the one that drew the breaking when it didn't look like what it should have been. No, it, it, it didn't like, and even, you know, say whatever you want about Kelly Jones as an artist, I will be the first to admit that that's his style is definitely an acquired taste, but the cover of Batman number 497, which is also this episode's artwork. I mean, that's a very stylized, very powerful, very painful, Mm -hmm. you know, image. And, you know, there's a, I realize that a, that, that a cover has it, – it, it, I don't want to say storytelling, 
but it has responsibilities that interior art maybe doesn't. Mm-hmm. But you know what you get here on the cover, just looking at Batman number four ninety seven. It's like Bane. He's basically staring the ca- staring at the camera, so to speak. He's really look. It's almost like he's looking the viewer right in the eye, and saying, "Yeah, here's your hero, bitch." And that's a kind of that when you think about it, you that's a kind of a scary and kind of ballsy image to have as your cover. I mean, this is like your marquee moment of the issue, mm-hmm. and you're putting it on the cover. I mean, that's that's pretty heavy duty and. The thing is, you know, like I say, I'm not saying that, you know, Kelly Jones is the perfect artist for all stories at all times, always. I'd never make that argument. But that that cover is it's extremely powerful and it's uh, like I say, painful. You get to that actual moment in the story, though, and I just at a glance, it seems to me that Jim Aparo gave it everything he's got. Mm-hmm. It's just he's not the guy to draw that moment. You know? He's not the artist to draw the fight choreography that a battle between Bane and who he was and the Batman who who he was at the time. You know, Batman, when Jim Aparo was in full flower with Batman, you know, he could get away with what I jokingly call it the judo chop. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you see. You see literally like a chop, which is not – it's just not how it works. I mean in some disciplines, yes. But, you know, but but Graham Nolan, for example, who who is a horrendously underestimated and underrepresented Batman artist. Tragically. The fact that that man does not get as much credit as he does when I think – no, no lie, no hyperbole. He and Chuck Dixon were the definitive Batman team in the nineties. Wow. Uh, I mean, it is nothing against Alan Grant and, um, and, and all the artists he worked. Cause I kind of think of Grant and Bray Fogel as eighties just because they came in in like 1988. Yeah. I'll go with you on that. So, and since the 90, since the decade does not begin when the decade begins, if you get what I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of what the, you know, like, like when we think of the eighties, nothing of what we think of the eighties was happening in 1980 or 1981. Right. So the same with the nineties is kind of like the middle part of the decade. So, and it's, and it's nothing against, you know, even Mensch and, and Kelly Jones, who I never liked Kelly Jones, but that was an aesthetic thing. Not, I didn't think he was a competent artist. Uh, Cause those are two different things with me. I, I feel I, I I'm uncomfortable talking about art most of the time because mm-hmm. I can't do it. So, you know, writing, I can't do it as well as other people, but I understand the mechanics of a story. Mm-hmm. I understand, you know, what works, what doesn't, how does this dialogue flow into that? How is the, what is the structure of the story? I get that with art. I'm just like, mm, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. So, so there's that, but those two, you know, not only, you know, created this character, but just would have, I think brought something to that story and to that issue, I think Chuck Dixon would have done a better job with Bane's dialogue in that issue because he understood who that character was because he created him. I mean, you can't say the same for Doomsday because Doomsday's main line and the entire story was Metrop- 
please. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, but you know, you talk about covers. It's just like it, it was very appropriate. Like the cover, the the newsstand cover to Superman number seventy five, for example, was very appropriate. It was the flag cape. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the five minutes after the the battles happen. Whereas here, it's just like, holy crap, <laughs> that's Batman getting getting uh, put over somebody's knee and not like getting spanked. Oh, ugh. I mean, it's just. It was a moment that needed something that even when I was, this was like, when was this? It had to be 93, like the end of 93. I was in Walden Books and flipping through the the second Nightfall trade because there's been like 15 iterations of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting to the fight because I kind of wanted to see the fight because I knew what was going on. I was just like, oh, Jim Aparo is drawing this. Yeah. <laughs> It's a little crestfallen, actually. Well, and the it hadn't really sunk in with me at the time that I pulled that issue off the shelf. It hadn't totally sunk in with me that Alan Grant and Norm Brayfield were leaving. It wasn't that Doug Mensch and Jim Aparo were filling in. No, Grant and Brayfogle were leaving, you know? Mm-hmm. And I... I guess I went into this thing on the assumption that, you know, it was, forgive me, a better artist was going to be doing this. And, you know, then as now, this is one of the lasting disappointments that I have of the entire Nightfall chimichanga is, you know, I mean, damn it, dude. This is the the moment around which the entire story pivots. I mean, this is where the story up to this point was going and everything that happens later comes from this moment. And I mean, you know, say whatever you want about, I don't know, maybe the gratuitousness of having a 22 page issue of a comic book full of nothing but splash uh, splash pages. But damn it, man, Dan Jurgens was on his friggin a game with Superman number 75. Mm-hmm. Every single one of those pages matters, you know, because they have to. And he knew he knew very well what he was up against. And, you know, I personally think it's the artist in a million that could make an entire issue of full page splashes work. Because if you think about it, yeah, maybe they're used a little gratuitously these days, but artists understand that you that they need those other pages. Number one, for dramatic effect. And number two, we still have to communicate a story in all of this, but leave it to a master like Dan Jurgens to do the I, I'm convinced it's still impossible. He did it. That doesn't make it possible. It means he performed a fucking miracle, you know? And I thought of all characters, you know, this, I mean, and, and of all stories, of all moments, you know, of all issues, this is the moment where, you know, you pull out all the stops and say, you know what, Apero, you've done great. We love you. We're giving this issue, though, to somebody that, I mean, shit, you know, I wouldn't have held it against. DC, I wouldn't have held it against them one bit if they'd gotten on the phone with Wildstorm Studios and paid Jim Lee however much money he wanted to do it. You know, come over to DC and, you know, we'll we'll, we'll figure out a way to make this work. You know, pay him whatever he wants. But, you know, get somebody that's got the visual flair and is already conversant with, I guess, the language of, for lack of a better word, cinema in action-oriented uh, types of comics 
you know, where the, the fight is really what drives this whole thing. And it's like, on the one hand, you've got this, I think it's still like the story of this, the narrative that, you know, Batman 497 gives us the dialogue and whatnot. I don't have a problem really with any of that. Um, I would like to have had uh, Chuck Dixon write that, but I think Minch did all right for himself. But damn it, man, the visual aspect. I mean, you know, it's just looking back at it, Jim Aparo should have been given a choice. You know, you can draw Batman number 497 or you can draw Batman number 500. What you're not going to do is both. And I don't know. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, he got what sounds like a pretty big nut off of those. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, off of those issues. I don't begrudge him that. I just damn it, man. You know, we I, and, and I would almost I don't want to go too far into movie territory here, but I kind of have a similar criticism about this similar moment in The Dark Knight Rises where, again, this is kind of the moment that defines that movie. And it's similarly visually lackluster. That it's yeah. Just... I, I've seen people say that that's like one of the greatest movie fights ever, and I and I really want to know how many films they've seen, and how many fights were in those movies because that is one of the poorest. God, the 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 fight choreography is sloppy, and Tom Hardy. God, oh man, what pisses me off about Dark Knight Rises is that everyone was like, well, they finally did Bane right. Fuck what. You. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's just like well, Bane was stupid in the comics. They did him right. It's like what? why? But yeah, I'm I'm not kidding. <laughs> I have seen this out there, and I have my blood pressure goes through the freaking roof every time I see it. Okay, all right. I originally was not gonna. I was gonna save this for my show with Alan Middleton. I'm just gonna throw this out there. All right, and if you disagree with me, fuck you. You're wrong. The character in The Dark Knight Rises is not Bane. The character in The Dark Knight Rises is Ubu. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> I completely agree with that. It's just, holy crap. I mean, he he was a lousy villain. He was all posturing, literally. Everything about the performance was posturing. Because it wasn't dialogue, because it was crap. I, I kind of like the dialogue. You know, he had some good... Some good observations and well i say that except for like that occupy wall street sort of motivational seminar he held <laughs> where he whips out you know the uh the, that speech jim gordon was going to give but didn't yeah because you know jim gordon's going to carry that around with him everywhere he goes yeah that makes sense so but uh he actually reads off that speech that stuff is kind of shit on a stick without a stick but basically anything up to his knee impacting batman's back i actually rather enjoy his dialogue in that movie I up, just, to, up to that moment. I, I just thought that you, you, you had this moment that in the comics was seminal. And you're going to bring that to the screen. And one, Nolan's fight scenes were never really spectacular to begin with. Uh, I always wanted him to back the camera up about, you know, two or three feet so I could actually see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because people, uh, these these directors get a hold of Batman and they, they just miss the whole point of Batman. They like get into the character's head to the point where it kind of ruins it visually. It's like Tim Burton in Batman Returns saying, well, Batman wouldn't be around as much because he wants to stay in the shadows. And it's just like, yeah, in story, 
that makes a lot of sense. When I go to a Batman film, I want to see Batman. I mean, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm asking too much on that. And it seemed like, especially in Dark Knight Rises, they took that idea and went, yeah, because we're going to have 45 minutes without the character. 45 minutes of him having a beard and long fingernails and peeing in a jar. And I know that didn't happen. I'm making a joke for the people out there that are getting upset. But you have this confrontation, and I remember watching it, and I'm just like, God, this fight's lousy. I'm just not interested. I'm not engaged in this at all. And then the breaking scene was just like, wow, that... I mean, I, I, high schoolers could do better than this. I mean, it was just, it was just extremely disappointing on every, and their second fight really wasn't that much better. What I'll say as a, as a reply to that, number one, I agree. But number two, oddly enough, I feel like the Bane Batman fights in that movie are probably the best. There's this moment where, Batman and Catwoman, fuck you if you don't like the fact that I called her Catwoman because I'm calling her Catwoman anyway. And again, fuck you. They're fighting a bunch of League of uh, Shadows. I don't know what you call foot soldiers, I guess, on some rooftop somewhere. Mm-hmm. And you have these foot soldiers that are falling over for no apparent. I mean, it's like they're not even getting punched or kicked or by anything. They're just falling. What? <laughs> the hell is going on and it's you kind of need to you have to watch those fights a couple of times like to really catch it but if you look in the background they'll just fall over for no reason and other times they'll do the the stage punch where you know they miss the uh the stunt guy by a good six inches because you don't want to actually punch somebody that's just not safe but you can actually see that their fist never even connects, and it just looks so fake. And, you know, the thing about it is I wouldn't even mind it so much except that half of fandom have their tongues so far up Chris Nolan's asshole about what a, a brilliant visionary filmmaker the guy is. And yet he puts together the most the, – just the clumsiest, most fucking Special Olympics fight scenes that I've ever seen. I mean I have seen M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong's movies from when he was a kid – these horrible, clumsy backyard yeah. movies, his fight scenes are better. Yeah. And that's to me, is just friggin' inexcusable, dude. And so my, I guess my standpoint about it is, if this was, if it was always going to be just this visually lackluster, and to be fair, a man breaking another man's back on his knee isn't necessary. If you're Chris Nolan, that there may not be like a, a way to show that in a, in a way that, suits your style. Zack Snyder, I'm, I'm convinced, would tear it up. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe Chris Nolan shouldn't do that. Maybe instead what Chris Nolan needs to do is show Bane slam Batman's back over a steel rail or something like that, or one of mm-hmm. those huge, like, cement pillars in his little hideout. Maybe that's what Chris Nolan needs to do, you know, because this whole idea of slamming him down on your knee... I don't know if that would actually break somebody's back. It's one of those things that it makes sense in a comic book, but I don't really know how clinically accurate that really is. But I'm pretty sure you fuck somebody up real bad you, if you do that, if you basically slam them against a, uh, basically a steel girder. And more to the point, he doesn't actually break his back. Yeah, he huge. slips something out of place. Yeah. Well, uh, which, but... which is more realistic. But... I'm not here for realism. I'm here to see a guy dressed up as a bat beat somebody's ass. I mean, 
from from me buying this ticket, I have given you license, okay? I have said I'm going to willingly suspend my disbelief, but that's going to get us on a whole thing about the realism of the Chris Nolan films, and that's going to get me, like, I'm trying to be calm these days, and mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to do that because, I mean, it might be amusing to people. Maybe people think it'd be funny to see hear me swearing and, and talking about it. But and, and, and I actually have good things to say uh, about all of the Chris Nolan Batman films. It's just like overall, I thought Dark Knight Rises one was a lousy ending to that trilogy. Mm-hmm. And two was an example of a filmmaker pretentiously thinking that he knew better than the source material. And I'm sorry, there is nothing about Bane's origin that wouldn't have worked on film. It's a great origin. It's a solid origin. It's steeped in psychological motivations and tragedy. I mean, you you just say he was born in prison. That's almost all you have to say, yeah. And 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 that gives you his motivation and the fact that he educated himself uh, you know, with Bird's help, the fact that Bird, Trog, and Zombie weren't there bothered me because I'm like, you know, they were great, you know, side villains, you know, and and leading up to Batman 497, they were the guys you fought before you got to the big boss, and I kind of liked that too. I liked him like going through all of them and having to fight them in different ways before finally getting his back broken. So it's just. There was so much you could have done there. Uh, but I think the biggest sin of Dark Knight Rises is that Nolan ruined for the moment the chances of having a Nightfall, a Dark Knight Returns, or a No Man's Land movie because he slammed them all together. Well, that's the thing. I never really saw the No Man's Land aspect of the movie. To me, I thought the clearer influence there was the cult. Um, I just felt like this is almost. I can see that. You, you could see like the Deacon Blackfire angle, and I mean, I guess like they're similar, like superficially, but like the I guess the story beats to me. It's just it, it reminds me more of the cult. That's all. But if you say we're going to cut Gotham City off from the rest of the country, mm, as yeah. as the the overall, somebody is going to say Dark Knight Rises did it. And it's it's just going to end in tears. Yeah, well, and th- what I usually uh, come back with is uh, when basically any time the subject of that movie ever comes up is Ra's al Ghul and the Scarecrow. Name, I don't know, two other villains that Nolan brought to the screen that weren't done before. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, it, you know, you could you, you could say it could have been in a fair and just world. It could have been Ubu and Talia, but <laughs> eh, if only we had to have Bane because we can sell some trade paperbacks out of that, which they did, to be fair. Right. I don't. Well, anyway, getting back into this story, though, one of the things that people say about this trilogy loosely under the banner of nightfall but it's really three stories one of the things that people say that just fucking blows my mind like to this day 
is this was a disposable story. Nothing really happened. And like as a result of this story, I mean, obviously shit went down in this story, but all said and done, this is a very episodic type of story. It serves the purpose that it was created for and nothing major or of lasting value comes out of this. And I just, when people say that, I just like, are you smoking fucking crack? I mean, look, I was on board that bandwagon myself for a lot of years there, but um, I want to say it's about a year ago. I uh, started up this uh, Batman reading project and I just arbitrarily chose the vengeance of Bane one shot and then just worked my way through shit. It was maybe it was, I want to say at least to Batman, Batman number five twenty five, and just that era, the other comics that were coming out Mm -hmm. at that same time. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'm here. May as well. I, I didn't really have the stomach to reread no man's land. So I just skipped that. And, um, went straight to like, uh, the late nineties, early two thousands era Batman, where I think you could fairly well say he was a different character by that point. Yes. And that was the first time I realized, you know what? You could not have that early two thousands Grant Morrison style bat God type of character. He needed to go through nightfall, you know? And what I mean by that is, what we see in Nightfall is what happens when Batman tries to do everything himself. And he learns through bitter, painful experience, he can't do everything himself, at least not right now. And so this, I think, is where that whole aspect of Batman as the master planner strategist guy really actually comes into play because this is a character who didn't really plan to ever be uh, just physically taken down and dominated by one of his enemies. He never planned necessarily for somebody to ever, you know, break open Arkham Asylum and all of his enemies come flooding out. You know, he never had infrastructure to deal with any of this stuff. He was basically committed to going out, catching the supervillain, dropping him off at Arkham Asylum, and then doing the same thing again the following night. He never strategized. And this is the price that he paid. All of the decisions that he made as a result of that, you know, learning the hard way that, number one, I've got to be ready, willing, and able to replicate myself. And number two, I've got to there's got to be some kind of a system in place whereby I can take over all crime in this city if I ever have to bring it under my personal control. If shit ever truly hits the fan, you know, he's got and all of a sudden when I was reading these stories, you had I want to say like after Night's End wrapped up, you had I swear to God, it was like a year of Batman just flagellating himself over hiring a nutcase to replace him as Batman and all the shit that ended up going down with Jean-Paul Valley. But here's the thing, the Batman that we see in the, let's just to put a number on it, 1999, this is a character that learned from all of those mistakes. Um, he, uh, he understood, you know, basically the lessons, maybe not the right lessons, but he learned lessons from Nightfall, from Nightquest, from Night's End and all the things that were going on with that. And we can argue that maybe he's applying them in the in perhaps the wrong way, but isn't that what makes for good fiction? I mean, it's 
what I'm saying is rereading this story as I did a year ago and then years worth of comics afterward, it made everything that Grant Morrison did with that character make so fucking much more sense than it would have otherwise. And so if you disagree with that, that's fine. But I at least kind of found myself in a place where I could totally see where the Grant Morrison Batman was coming from, you know? So. I um, I did something similar years ago. It was starting in 2003, going all the way into like 2005. I sat down and read every issue of Batman, Detective, Legends of the Dark Knight, Shadow of the Bat, Catwoman, Robin, Nightwing, Batman Chronicles. If it was a main Batman book and even some miniseries Shit. and specials, I just started at Batman number 401 and worked my way up to 2002. Shit. So and like 1987? 80, 86. 86? So it was, it was like 14, 15 years of Batman comics. And at one point there was like four different titles. And... I was so plugged into this project. Like I would be buying like, you know, like new comics, but, uh, and it was, and most of it was in the break room at home Depot. Cause that's where I was working at the time. So I had a lunch hour. So I'd go like through four or five books, a a, 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 a go and read some at home too. So my perspective of the story changed because like I said before, I read the novel, I listened to the audio adaptation and then in the fall of 1994, I bought the two trade paperbacks that made up Nightfall. There was no Night Quest trade paperback. And Night's End, I read, you may remember these when you would go to like uh, toy stores and they'd have packs of comics. Oh, yeah. Like in a little cardboard thing. Yeah. And uh, it was the weekend Batman Forever or like a week after Batman Forever came out. I saw it opening night, but then my sisters came up to visit. And we all went to see it together, and we went to Toys R Us for some reason, and I found both packs of the Night's End books. Hmm. So that's how I read that. So I, But I never read the whole thing, you know, from beginning to end with all the lead-up. And to my mind, uh, you know, the, the Grant Brayfogle Batman stories that happened before Nightfall are kind of like their own island. You know, they are the Batman of that era. Yeah. Uh, you know, nothing against Marv Wolfman or Peter Milligan who were writing Batman on and off. And then Bray Fogle and, and, and Grant went over to Batman. Nothing against them and nothing really against Chuck Dixon when he started with, uh, with um, Detective Comics. But there is just something about, from the moment, both Sword of Asriel and Vengeance of Bane hits that that to me is the start of my favorite era of Batman. Because like you said, there is an organic evolution to Batman through those time periods. A lot of people will try to pigeonhole it into, oh, it was just a bunch of events. And really it wasn't. No. Just putting it out there. It was after Troika, there was Contagion, Legacy, Cataclysm, No Man's Land. That's not a lot. Now, it took up a lot of books, but there were long stretches where these people got to do what they wanted. Years you know, in some cases, yeah. Could, yeah, but after 
96 was Legacy, and that was when they declared like almost a two-year moratorium on crossovers. But when you look at how all of those pieces fit in, and when you read them all together like I did, mm-hmm. it was like this grand story of Batman where, like you said, he learned from Nightfall. It was a revealed in No Man's Land that during Prodigal, when Dick Grayson was Batman, and Bruce Wayne was off, one of the things he was doing was building little mini caves all over the city so that if shit went down, he could he didn't have to go back to Wayne Manor to regroup. He had stores and caches and, and different things that he could do. And I loved that because, like you said, you hit it on the head. He learned from his mistakes. And when you look at the, the, the how everything played out, he learned from them and then made all new mistakes because after Troika, he thought he was on top of his game (laughs) and you know, yeah, he made it through contagion and he made it through legacy, but the earthquake just threw him for a loop and he started making all the same mistakes again. I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. You need to all go away. And through the course of no man's land, He's like, no, if I'm going to save this city, I'm going to need all the help I can get. I need Jim Gordon on my side. I need Robin and Nightwing running interference. I'm even going to use Huntress, and she's not going to even be aware that she's part of my plan. But she's going to be off taking care of Billy Pettit because that motherfucker is a psycho. (laughs) And I need someone watching him. And it's just like, it's a beautiful story from that from that perspective, which is why as much as I like, you know, Greg Rucka, especially just nailed detective comics. And when Ed Brubaker was writing Batman, it was really exciting. It seemed to be kind of a step back for Batman on an evolutionary scale because it was then all, you know, it was like, well, I'm going to keep making mistakes and I'm going to keep making mistakes and I'm going to learn from them. And then I'm going to make them. I'm going to learn from them. And it became a, a pattern instead of something that just kind of happened. Right. So, I mean, it's just it's Nightfall to me is every bit important to Batman's evolution through the 90s as Doomsday was to Superman. You can't have the greatness that came afterwards without it. Well, I say this not to offend you, but. Um, there, there came a point and it was in the nineties. I mean, for the moment, forget about Steven T Siegel and all those other guys, Chuck Austin, I, I, you know, I'll give a nod to, because again, not to offend you, I really do enjoy uh, his run on, on action comics, but there came a point in the nineties, I would say specifically the late nineties where the stories, they were, they were just so lackluster. They were so underwhelming almost offensively so in some ways that I kind of started thinking, you know what? Maybe the real end of this character truly was in Superman number 77. And maybe Superman never really did come back from the dead because of this, these are the stories we're going to get with Superman back from the dead. Maybe I don't really want him back. Now I, I will agree with you. In, on on some levels, because 95 was a good year, 
94 was a good year. 94 was a good year. 96 is where some of the cracks started to show. I think the Electric Blue era is much maligned, probably more so than it needs to be. Yes. And I will admit, after the Dominus storyline, it was time for a new regime. It it was just time. It was nothing against Dan Jurgens or Louise Simonson or Carl Kessel or any of the people working on those books, but they have run out of steam. And, and I saw that. And that's why when Loeb and Kelly and, well, Mark Schultz was already writing the book at that point, um, and uh, the rotating <laughs> writers that came on Adventures of Superman, when all that hit in late 1999, it was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, and it was only after like 2002 that that started to fall apart. So uh, I'll agree with you. So it's, I, I was not finding it offensive at all. Um, in many ways, and this is may sound strange coming from me, I think Batman was consistently better in the 90s than Superman was. Consistently. Not individual story versus individual story. You know, I'll ride with that, but, you know, the, look, the way, I, the way I look at it, and honestly, I wouldn't want to offend really any of the any anybody who worked on Superman, especially in the '90s, not even Louise Simonson, but I think it's kind of a tall order to ask that that many, I think, very gifted and very creative writers and artists they pour that much of themselves and their personal creative energy into the stories, and then say, "Okay, thank you, now do it again," and. You know, looking back at it, I mean, I will defend goings on in Superman from 1986 going right on through to probably about 1994, 1995. As you say, starting 1996, all due respect to these people that I have nothing but the utmost admiration and appreciation for. I'm grateful that they specifically were working on Superman when they were, to a lesser degree, Louise Simonson. But yes, all of them. But I kind of have to agree with you that there is a there's something that happened where Superman reached so many people in uh, with that huge storyline that he went through that I think, you know, his there was a point and God knows you lived through it, too, where people would look at you funny when you went into the comic book store to pick up you know, that week's Superman issue. I, you've, you've kind of joked about that a few times, but brother, I truly do feel your pain. I went through that too. And, you know, there'd be some creepy looking goth chick in there who was looking for the new issue of Sandman. She's looking down her nose at you because, you know, you're, you're there to buy Superman or the, that long haired tattooed freak behind the counter. Um, you know, he's looking down his nose at you cause you're not buying young blood or something like that. And, then there came a point when the worm turned on that, and I, I want to believe that it was that they saw the same value in this character that you and I always did. Mm-hmm. And so from then on, the vibe in the comic book store was – I remember that changing right around the time of Reign of the Superman and that uh, coming out to where they may not necessarily be dyed-in-the-wool Superman fans – they at least understand now where you're coming from. 
That having been said, though, I don't know that subsequent stories necessarily grabbed them, and they certainly didn't grab me. Whereas Batman, he wasn't really in not even a perceived rut. I think Superman was in a perceived rut once uh, John Byrne left. And it wasn't that the magic had gone out of the titles. It's that John Byrne had gone out of the titles. And so the romance for a lot of people had gone away. But creatively, I think those books were as solid. In fact, I remember sending you a message on Facebook because I didn't know where else to go. I had to gush at somebody about how friggin' awesome that immediate, that, that sort of late John Byrne period. And then that, era like right after he left the Superman mm-hmm. books, they were on, I don't care what anybody says. That stuff is as good as anything. Burn. Uh, when he had virtually full control of all of the books, I'd put that up against anything that he ever did. And that's not, and that's not shit talking John Byrne either. I'm just saying it's all good to me, but it's a bit much to ask other people to see the same thing. They at least perceived that Superman was in a rut and, I don't know. Perception is nine-tenths reality, I suppose. Batman, honestly, he never had, that I can remember, he really didn't have that working against him, which is weird if you think about it, because I think the monthly title of Batman, basically starting with issue number 400 and then working right on through, probably up to about the time um, that that we're talking about now here in 1993 – Mm-hmm. I actually do think that book was all over the fucking map. I mean, that you talk about a clusterfuck. Oh, goings on with Batman. I mean, yeah, you have that island of Batman Year One, but everything surrounding that. Good God, uh, it, that's it, it's funny that the shadow of Dark uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight, and then Year One, like that created so much goodwill because before that, and I've talked to like Scott Gardner uh, will attest to this. There was a time where Batman was not popular comic book wise. Mm-mm. Uh, he was not a favorite character. And then Frank Miller came along and kind of brought him to a larger stage. And I think the perception there is, and this is another thing about nightfall. The perception is once, you know, after Dark Knight, everything was golden. But you're absolutely right. You had, in uh, going in order, uh, you had Max Allen Collins on Batman, and you had uh, Mike W. Barr on Detective Comics. Uh, Max Allen Collins wrote some really crappy stories. Uh, I have some nostalgic love for them, but aesthetically, they're terrible. Uh, and the artwork really wasn't all that good. And that's nothing against Dave Cockrum or the other artists he worked with. They were just subpar stories. Alan Grant and uh, not Alan Grant, Alan Davis and Mike W. Barr were doing great stories in, in Detective. I mean, they were kind of 80s versions of the 60s stuff, which yeah. I thought was great. And by the way, Mike W. Barr's Batman was a, he didn't kill anybody. But he wasn't really upset when people died. In fact, there's an issue where he uses a dude as a human shield. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, so that's, then... Yeah, that's pretty metal right there. So then you had Jim Starlin come on Batman. And he had a very 70s view of this character. And in rereading him recently, I got the sense that this was, a, this was an older Batman. This was a, a seasoned Batman. And he's the one that really carried it all the way through death in the family uh, with some 
decent stories and then some stories like Ten Nights of the Beast, which doesn't date well. No. You you can't read a story nowadays where Mikhail Gorbachev is like a central figure and it's the USSR because none of that exists anymore. So there's no there's no way for a 10-year-old kid today to read that to understand anything of what uh, Starlin is talking about. And then over in Detective, you had w, Mike W. Barr finishing out his run and then Alan Grant and John Wagner come on. And they just start kicking out these great two-issue storylines where it's good. But Batman is where things are kind of floundering, even when Marv Wolfman took over. Because he's the next one after Starlin. And he does Batman Year 3, which was good. But then you had like that year after that before uh, where you have Wolfman and then sometimes Peter Milligan writing the series where it was up and down and up and down and up and down. And detective is just this solid, like every month you may not agree with the politics of the story, but damn, it's going to look pretty because Bray Fogle is going to draw the crap out of that character. Right. Which, and when it comes to eighties Batman to me, and maybe to a, to a degree nineties Batman detective comics really is the kid to beat the monthly mm-hmm. ongoing Batman book. Yeah. No, but Nightfall was where the Batman titles all came together. And so while they all had their own identities and they were upfront about that, Detective is going to be the detective book. Batman's going to be the kind of creepy, kooky, altogether ooky book. And Shadow of the Bat's going to be the psychologically driven book because that's what those writers do best. They, they wrote to their strengths. And I think that's where the consistency came from is that you had, unlike the Superman books where everybody had to work together, which had its drawbacks, less drawbacks than successes, I will say, but there were drawbacks there. Uh, Whereas with Batman, you didn't have to read Shadow of the Bat to keep up with everything. You could drop Shadow of the Bat altogether. You could drop Batman altogether. You could just read Detective, or you could just read Batman, or you could just read Shadow of the Bat. It was... it's just kind of interesting that Nightfall is where everything kind of came together. Like Denny O'Neill had this long shakedown period of his editorial ship. And this is where all of the chips fell into place. Yeah. I, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I do regard this as being the, I guess the, maybe the prime of Denny O'Neill's tenure on the character as editor. When, I I think he came on something like 1986 or 87 or something like that. Batman 401. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, he I don't know if it was just, you know, through sheer force of will or what, but Andy Helfer and Mike Carlin they they pretty much had the trains running on time creatively with Superman from the get-go and it's easy to to assume that a lot of that was probably due to John Byrne kind of bringing his vision to Superman really from the get-go. And so all they really had to do was basically work out any outstanding kinks or anything like that. But it was from a creative standpoint, it was already unified to begin with. Whereas with Batman, you had character, not characters. You had these writers who I don't know if they were necessarily, creatively speaking, necessarily on the same page with one another, that they were 
I'll just say it necessarily even writing the same character, you know, because like you say, you know, there were, you'd get these strange kind of 1980s tributes to very 60s type of stories. And then you'd get very, uh, I don't know how else to put it, just very bronze agey type stories too. And then you'd get fucking Frank Miller. And, you know, where are we in terms of, you know, finding like a tonal consistency here? And when you, it's only when I started, when I went through my own reading project, I started to realize, yeah, you know, I agree with you, Bailey. I mean, you're absolutely right. This was the moment when Denny O'Neill was finally able to line all of his ducks in such a way that the the creators really are on the same page with one another most of the time. I mean, like you say, I do think it's, I do think it's accurate to point out that Doug Minch and Chuck Dixon had, I don't think vastly different conceptions of Jean-Paul Valley, but pretty different, uh, pretty different ideas about who he is. And, but otherwise, I mean, when you, I guess when you move away from sort of nitpicks and fine details and stuff like stuff like that, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I guess an, uh, a time when Batman in comics was truly a franchise now. Mm-hmm. Whereas before it was, you know, DC itself was made up of fiefdoms, but there was a, there's a strong argument Batman, the Batman office, had fiefdoms unto itself or maybe separate camps or however you want to put it. I don't know. Uh, I, if, if I was more familiar with how the feudal system worked, I could probably make a better comparison, but I'm just blanking at the moment. <laughs> So. Well, anyway, now uh, I did have a funny story about the um, Night Quest trade paperback that I wanted to uh, tell you about, just because it's kind of horrifying. <laughs> but okay, um, what happened was it was like uh, maybe six months or a year or something like that after I I moved back to Houston, I got myself a uh, this uh, townhouse in uh, Copperfield. Right, this is interesting to maybe three or four people, but for those interested, I lived in Copperfield at the time. And, uh, so, and I like Copperfield. I mean, it's a very middle-class, you know, uh, part of town. And I just like the energy of that part of town. I always have, I just, to me, it's just kind of neat that you can drive down the street, hang a ride. And there's a huge movie theater, like half a mile up the road, all of these different restaurants and stuff, but it's still a very quiet place, you know? And I've always liked that. But now and then the weirdos would come out at night. And so one night before, uh, before going to bed, my usual nighttime ritual at the time went outside to have a cigarette. I was on my back patio and I looked over and, uh, saw my neighbor sitting across, uh, across the lawn on his patio. And he was holding up a, uh, just kind of propping up, um, you know, on his lap, a, uh, it's basically a, a copy of the, of the night quest trade paperback. And then he makes, and I have to assume he did not know I was out there. That's, I'm going to operate on the assumption. He didn't know that I was outside smoking at that moment because he put down his night quest trade paperback, popped open his laptop, clicked around for a while took out his willy and started jerking off like right there just in front of everything. And I'm having to sit out there, finish my cigarette, acting like I can't see what's about to happen. And yes, he 
uh, he, not to put too fine a point on it, finished what he began. And it's and the thing about it that, that kind of blew my mind was that he actually tore a page um, or a couple of pages out of the trade paperback and used that to clean up the mess, shall we say. And I'm like, this is the most vile and unnecessary desecration of a Batman comic book that I think I will ever witness in life. And I am powerless to do anything about it. So, but yeah, how's that for an uplifting story? I guess the only thing you can really do at that point is yell across the way, nice circumcision, asshole. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a That's, weird one. And, huh? you know, I don't know what I'm more upset about that, that he did that or that he tore p- trade paperback to now, if it was like, you know, like, like the young blood trade paperback, I, you know, well that you just used to prop up like the table. But, uh, I mean, Ew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I don't know. Just a... I need a shower now after hearing that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the thing is that it, if that was the only time, that was the first time I ever saw it, but if that was the last time, I might not have called the front office and said, guys, the next time I see this happen, I'm calling the cops. So uh, you may want to let that guy know. So, How do you have that conversation with one of your 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 tenants or whatever? It's just like, sir, um, we've had a complaint. Is it the noise? No, no, noise, noise, noise is fine. Um, am I like, are my lights left on? Am I not mowing my front yard? No, I think your front yard is getting tended to uh, rather nicely, and that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I work. Look, Bailey, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um. And thankfully, I haven't either, at least not from not firsthand experience. But, you know, not long after I started up at the job I've got, the I started hearing stories that I am I eventually had to I couldn't help myself. I had to ask my boss to confirm. And, you know, just I guess in the vocabulary of just awkward conversations, there were people at that company that were fired because of BO issues. They were fired because of stank. You know, how badly have you fucked up if you get fired from your job because you can't take a fucking shower? Yeah, well, you see, I can actually relate to that because I've had to talk to associates at my job about body odor and do some laundry because it's either the shirt stinks because they've never washed it. Oh geez. Or they've just got stains on it. Oh geez. And, and I'm sorry. Uh, acceptable admonishing from my boss, Mike, um, we've been reviewing your performance lately. You're not doing too badly. But here's the areas where we think you can improve. Okay, uh, you can do this, that, and the other. Go with God. If I ever have to have a boss come to me and say, "Mike, there's a stain on your shirt. It's been there for a week and a half. What the fuck?" I have failed on a fundamental level at life. I'm sorry. If you if if, if you're the type of person that works from home, a stain on your shirt's not an issue because no one's seeing you. And hopefully you have like a nice shirt for your work, your web meetings and stuff where you actually have to look at other people. But if you're going out, oh, geez, 
I never understood that. I, uh, I, I, I totally, I get where you're coming from on that because I've been there where it's just like, you're just like, it's almost like abort retry fail. Abort retry fail just appears before you mm-hmm. because it's just crashed. <laughs> well, there's just only a certain generation that's going to get that joke. Yeah. <laughs> the You know, the thing is, you know, there are certain things, there are certain experiences that I don't know as I'd go so far as to say that they're kind of unavoidable. But they're not unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. I got fired from a job, strike one, from a mall, strike two, in November. Damn. <laughs> How badly did I have to piss off the boss that she fired me during the build-up to fucking Christmas? I'm guessing it was pretty bad. It's pretty epic. Yeah, so... And you know what? I got to tell you, it wasn't like a, I don't mean this in like a clinical sense, like I was clinically depressed or anything, but I was kind of, you know, bummed out for a couple weeks there because like the bigness of that was not lost on me. How badly did I fuck up if I got fired before Christmas from a retail job like this? And honestly, I mean, there, there were some complications there and so, you know, it's really not quite as simple as I'm making it out to be, but fuck it. It's about as simple as I'm making it out to be. So that's one of those things in life that, you know what? It's just luck of the draw. You're, it's not necessarily a good thing to get fired from your job, but, you know, shit happens in life, man. I mean, you know, what do you want to hear? I am Getting living through that down. right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well, we'll circle back to that, but, you know, Getting sat down with HR and them having to tell you, you know, dude, you need to wash your ass or something because, you know, I mean, I got a report, like a complaint that you're stinking up the place. And, you know, the the moment you came into the office, I believed it. You know, I mean, we're talking like you have failed on a very fundamental, very kindergarten type of level, you know, where we were all taught back in kindergarten, you know, dude. There are certain things you need to do every single day. You got to comb your hair, brush your teeth, take showers, wear clean clothes. You know, I mean, we're talking like the very fucking basics of life. You know, no one's asking you to to build a brand new uh, lunar rover or something like that. You know, just do, do some fucking laundry. You know, I mean, you know, we've set the bar about as low as we possibly can. I mean, after this, you know, uh, the only thing I can think of to solve your problems is sending your sorry ass off to prison. Even there, you know, you still have to take a shower every day. You're going to get deloused. So, you know, even they have the have those simple things taken care of. So fair enough. All right. No problem. <laughs> well, uh, I guess as far as uh, this trilogy is concerned, obviously, I've kind of talked myself out on it. Now, do you have any kind of parting shots or anything like that you want to hash through? Um, if, if you're out there and you have been told that this is one, a bad story to a 90s story that doesn't need to be read or three, that Bane sucks. Um, you were lied to and you need to have a long conversation with your spiritual advisor on how to deal with those people. Uh, but before you do that, read Nightfall. Yeah. Well, I, I think the only manifestly 90s aspect of this story It's not even really anything to do with the story. But the only really 90s part about it to me is the Asbats costume. Yes. And even that, I think, was a little intentional. I don't know. Maybe not. But other than that, I mean, 
I don't really think I, I don't really see anything in the story that just dates it. You know, like, oh, this is so 90s. I mean, I, apart from people watching each other a lot from the shadows, as if this is the only offender in that category. I mean, this is. I think it's a. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's timeless, but I mean, I don't see it as being overly dated either. So whatever. But uh, all right, well, uh, Bailey. You don't just uh, do my show. You uh, periodically release your own show, so uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Uh, there's Views from a Longbox at viewsfromalongbox.com. Uh, I, either alone or with a, with a friend, will talk about just about anything. I mean, I've talked about Preacher. I've talked about Spawn. I've spent an inordinate amount of time talking about Superman uh, and Batman, really. Uh, Spider-Man, all that. Just It's just basically whatever strikes my fancy at the moment. Uh, there's also From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, uh, which can be found at FortressOfBailey2.com, and there's a link for it up at the Superman homepage, uh, where Jeffrey Taylor and I have been going through uh, the post-crisis adventures of Superman, and we're about to get into the, as of this recording, uh, I have no idea when this is going to be released, but to date this recording, we're about to get into the death of Clark Kent. Uh, which I'm kind of looking forward to because I, I really enjoyed that story. There's also Bailey's Batman podcast. Uh, even though we haven't done one in a while, Scott and I over at Two True Freaks do Tales of the Justice Society of America. And as you've mentioned, uh, I am also on Comics Monthly Monday when we do that show. And every Monday night, just about at 1030 Eastern Standard Time, you can hear me and Steve Eunice live on Radio KAL Live, where we take callers and talk about Superman. And where can they uh, go to listen to Radio KAL Live? Oh, the Superman homepage. I thought I mentioned that. I apologize. Yeah, oh, SupermanHomepage.com. Yeah. Oh, okay. I just want to be sure. All right. Well, uh, Bailey, uh, thank you again for uh, joining in. And just to kind of answer your question, the uh, the release date for this episode, and again, I mean, God only knows what might change between now and whenever, but... The way that it is right now, this is uh, episode 120 set for release on November the 3rd, so that should be fun. But uh, anyway, thank you again for joining in, and um, as to next week, I'm going to be joined by uh, J. David Weeder, but you can call him Dave, so that we can talk about the Flash Terminal Velocity and uh, goings-on with that. And if it sounds like I may have already recorded that episode... That's probably just a trick of the audio. Pay no attention to it. (laughs) So, uh, but at least for right now, thank you very much. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Good God Almighty, we're out. think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. 
but we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out Dorkness to Light blogspot.com for our more regular content or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content memes and puns mostly my bad dorkness to light often irreverent rarely sacrilegious hey kids do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more, hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition on iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday at www. SupermanHomePage.com and www.FortressOfBaileyTude.com
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.